Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Airway First, the podcast from the Children's Airway First Foundation. I'm your host, Rebecca Downing. My guest today is Dr. William Harrell. Dr. Harrell began his orthodontic practice in Alexander City, Alabama in 1977 and has devoted most of his career to educating his peers, the public, and other healthcare professionals on the importance of discovering and treating airway obstructions leading to altered growth issues in children that can cause serious health conditions later in life. Throughout his career, he has worked alongside pioneers such as Dr. William Faro, the pioneer of TMJ therapy, and Dr. Christian Gimeno, one of the fathers of sleep medicine. Dr. Harrell lectures to residents, medical doctors, and dentists worldwide. He's also a professor at the University of Alabama, Birmingham School of Dentistry, Orthodontic Department. Dr. Harrell is the chairperson of Radside Standards Committee on Combing CT for both medicine and dentistry. He's also on the American Dental Association's Children's Airway Screener Task Force. The task force is tasked with developing a children's screening questionnaire called CGASP for uncovering early airway issues in children. Dr. Harrell is the lead editor of a medical and dental textbook called Growing into Breathing Problems, The Quest for Collaborative Lifetime Solutions, which is scheduled to be published by Springer Publishing in early 2023. You can find out more about Dr. Harrell at drharrell.com. And now let's jump into our podcast with Dr. William Harrell. All right. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Dr. Harrell. I really appreciate it. Yeah, glad to be here. I appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. So we're going to jump in with something that was on your website that, that struck me. It states that in order to diagnose and treat airway conditions, practitioners must achieve anatomical truth. So what exactly is that? Yeah, I'm going to share my screen as we go through this. This will be, uh, it'll help me, uh, it'll help me explain some of this, but Originally, you know, when, in orthodontics, this can you hear me? I'm not muted. I, I sure can. Okay. Yeah. Okay, good. Let me see if this will. Uh, can you see my screen? Uh, no, try one more time. All right, here we go. This is the one I want to do. There we go. Okay. Can you see it? Can you see that? I- Children I can. First foundation mm-hmm. slide. Okay, great. Yes, and I'll put uh, links to this in our, our show notes too. Yeah, I appreciate everybody. I appreciate the invitation to do that. Uh, I wanted to kind of mention first, you know, a book that we're in the process of writing with a bunch of bunch of people on growing into breathing problems. David Gazal is the most prolific writer now in the world on sleep apnea, and mm-hmm. David McIntosh is a pediatric ENT, and we have a number of others. One of them is actually chairman of ENT at Stanford, took over Dr. Gimeno's position, Stanley Liu. But anyway, I kind of wanted to say that's hopefully coming out in May of 2023 is what we're looking for. But I kind of wanted to talk about the anatomic truth because what we used to use in orthodox or what traditionally is still done are just kind of two-dimensional films, uh, like a, a 2D self or a 2D pan and that really doesn't give you the anatomic truth. It's giving you a picture in time. But as far as 
we know there's geometric distortions in those images and, we, and they have been forever, but we've kind of accepted that fact. So when cone beam CT came on the scene, then all of a sudden we now have, this is my grandson actually, that we take the 3D face on, but we can actually map it to the cone beam CT. So not only does the professional get a better view of actually what the relationship, you know, in three dimensions or the amount of airway, uh, the airway size, the TMJs, the teeth, the, the development of the teeth. But also what it does, it gives the parents and patients a better idea of understanding at a whole different level when they see this. They're not only wowed by it. I mean, that's one reason you do it. But to, but to be able to go in and, and show them this kind of an image, uh, you can just understand it at a whole different, a whole different kind of level. So the... Yeah. Uh, so the anatomic truth is really trying to represent true anatomy as it exists in nature. And then now with, you know, with cone beam and being able to evaluate the, the two dimensions along with the airway and, and, and evaluating tongue space just makes it that much, that much better. And it, if I understand correctly, your, your uh, dental practice is one of the first to use this, CBCT technology in, yeah. in Alabama. Right. The cone beam CT was introduced to the world in about 1996 in Europe, in Italy, actually. And okay. then 2001 was when the first machine uh, was introduced in the United States at Loma Linda University first. Mm -hmm. uh, and then at David Hatcher, who's an oral radiologist in Sacramento, was actually the, got it the next day and claims to be the one that actually first used it in the United States. We got ours, uh, the ICAT, we got it in uh, 2005. So we were pretty early on. We were the first ones in Alabama, one of the first in the southeast uh, to, uh, to use cone beam. And I, I wouldn't look, you know, now I couldn't practice without it. <laughs> Right. Well, and, and I guess that begs the question, why aren't more dental practices using this? I mean, clearly you get a far more robust picture of what's going on. Well, you do. And then, of course, a lot of it's being used for in oral surgery for implants or periodontic when they're doing implant, implant kind of uh, uh, situations. But Orthodontics has kind of been a little bit slow. I hate to say that uh, in in adopting it, I thought it would be uh, I thought it'd be pretty much standard of care. I think it one day it, it's gonna be. First of all, when it first came out, of course the radiation doses were a little bit higher, well, significantly okay. higher than just a pan and a self. So that okay. was kind of part of the thing. Oh, we're gonna you know we're radiating too much. Uh, the other is cost because, um, you know, these machines are not are not cheap. And so but now the actually I've got the ICAT Flex and in the machine that I have now, I can take a what you see over there on the right, like on my grandson. I, I can take that for less radiation dose. Oops, sorry about that. Less radiation dose than these two films. Really? Yes, I can take this 
these two films normally in a normal traditional dental uh, orthodontic practice are anywhere from 25 to 30 microsieverts. Now you get about eight microsieverts a year a day just by living on the earth. So you get around almost 3,000 microsieverts of dose living at sea level. So okay. this is about 30. If you take a full mouth digital imaging of, of the teeth, like what most dentists do, that's anywhere from 75 microsieverts to 150 microsieverts. Now, traditional mm. CT is like 600 to 8,000 microsieverts of dose, but they're looking for different things. They're looking for cancer and that kind of stuff. But now with ICAT Flex and some of these low dose protocols, I can do a, I can do a uh, scan, which will give me this kind of information in about 20, less than 24 microsieverts wow. or, or even 18 microsieverts. So I'm getting less dose. So dosage is not really a barrier to entry. It's cost. So it's I'm, cost. You know, it, it's, but to me, the traditional 2D stuff is going to kind of be a boat anchor one day. And so I would yeah. recommend, you know, doctors, orthodontists or, or dentists mm -hmm. that are looking into airway and looking into TMJ. Hey, the return on investment will come. I mean, if, if you start doing it and then the, the, the amount of information that you're giving patients and the patient and, and how they can understand is just, it's night and day. Really uh, yeah, I would think so. And yeah. I, do you run into any issues as far as insurance goes for billing this over the standard panels? Well, the good, no, because it, if it's in, I can create a pan in a self if I, you know, if I want to, I, I do create a pan because I do send those to the, to the dentist, but a traditional self I can create if, I mean, you can actually, it doesn't matter what machine you use. Okay. You can, if you want to file for traditional 2d images, you can, what we do a lot of, of our stuff is TMJ and sleep related. So we bill it through medical. So it's a medical insurance, which is a whole different ball game, but you can, there's a CBCT code in dentistry too. So there are, there are codes that you can, that you can use to file uh, dental and medical insurance. Okay, good. So it's not more for the parents. That's good. Right. Right. Yeah. You also mentioned on your, your practice website, which I will include links to that you, your, evaluation includes nasal resistance and nasal airflow. Right. So how do you obtain these measurements and, you know, how do they help you as far as your diagnosis and treating? Yep. Great question. And I want to start with a video from Dr. Christian Gimeno, who's the father of, you know, father of sleep medicine. One of mm -hmm. He and Demet and Powell and Riley. I got this video from Dr. Karen Davidson. We're going to be talking about uh, rhinomanometry and nasal resistance and nasal airflow, and she's probably the world expert on this. But I want to kind of go over this uh, video because I think this tells it all about nasal, you know, nasal resistance and, and what, what we need to be doing, whether we're an orthodontist or a dentist, if we're looking at airway issues, pediatric dentists, pediatricians, ENTs, uh, pulmonologists, whatever that might be dealing with 
with airway issues. I want to play this just a second. The treatment of any sleep disorder breathing is nasal breathing. The end treatment of yes. any sleep disorder breathing is nasal breathing. Correct. We even published that. <laughs> we see my colleague, Dr. Sullivan, Shannon Sullivan. Uh, it's uh, it's absolutely necessary. If you don't obtain that during sleep, because you may do that during wake, but you have to check during sleep, you have not succeeded in treating your child. Okay. So, uh, now I'm going to play that one more time because I think it's important to hear. Okay. Sleep disorder breathing is nasal breathing. The end treatment of yes. any sleep disorder breathing is nasal breathing. Correct. We even published that. <laughs> we see my colleague Dr. Sullivan, Shannon Sullivan. Uh, it's uh, it's absolutely necessary. If you don't obtain that during sleep, because you may do that during wake, but you have to check during sleep, you have not succeeded in treating your child. Now that's a pretty amazing. That's a pretty amazing uh, statement by mm -hmm. the man that discovered sleep apnea and then discovered pediatric sleep apnea. And so you might ask, well, you know, how do you, how do you measure this? Uh, mm -hmm. I've been looking at cone beam, you know, CT and looking at pharyngeal airway, uh, maybe asking them about, you know, looking at them and if they mouth breathe, you know, we try to get them on nasal breathing, but really Karen Davidson introduced me to this, uh, to this technology and then I got, I, I got to thinking about it and I said well this makes a lot of sense to start measuring they get objective measurements of nasal airflow since that should be one of our main goals or, or probably the number one goal is to get these kids to breathe through the nose release right. the oxide proper tongue position and all that mm -hmm. so if we look at if we look at these, I've got both of these in my office. One is called acoustic rhinometry. And what it does, it's on the left side. Can you see my cursor? I sure can. Okay, good. It's the one on the on the right side, acoustic rhinometry. Basically, it sends sound waves. They The patient holds this on one side of the nostril and sends sound waves down the, uh, down the anatomy. And it, it looks at minimum cross-sectional area. It kind of maps out like sonar, so to speak, mm -hmm. all okay. the way down from the tip of the nose to the, to the sinuses and even a little bit beyond that. So acoustic rhinometry measures minimum cross-sectional area volume. It's a structural thing, kind of like CBCT, okay? okay. It, it kind of it measures that. Because CBCT is a more of a... A static image. This is really static too, but rhinomanometry, which people get these things mixed up. They go rhino, rhinometry. Mm -hmm. and rhinometry is really acoustic. Rhinomanometry. It's a manometer. It measures flow. It measures nasal resistance. So it measures okay. function, which is really important because you put a mask on, you have them stop up one side of their nose, they'll breathe normally for about four times. And then, then they'll stop up the other side and breathe normally. And then it makes a graft, which I'll show you in just a second, what you're looking at. 
This okay. this one, uh, acoustic rhinometry gives you a graft also. And there are medical codes and medical insurances that these can be billed for. Now, so you, what you're looking at is objective measurements, and rhinomanometry is the one that measures functions. So here's kind of a, a graft of a person, and Karen kind of came up with this, where she relates the airflow. This is inspiration. This graft is inspiration on the right side when you inspire and this is expiration on the right side. So it's okay. like a little S curve. Mm -hmm. even though it looks like an S it's, and then here's inspiration on the left. Here's expiration on the left. So okay. it creates this little S shaped curve. Now you can see this one actually passes through. Where does it pass through the orange? And if you look over here on the AHA RDI side, it that, where it crosses this line is about up here at mild sleep apnea. So you can almost predict or may be able to predict the, the problems that you, that you could run into. So if you want it up, you want it to be a big lazy S is what you want. Mm. Like. So here's gotcha. kind of those. And if you look at maybe normal or ideal, it would look more like this. So it would be up in this green area, which means you would be down here. So the more squatty the S's, mm -hmm. so to speak, the more nasal resistance and, and lack of airflow. So okay. if you look at this particular case over here, you've got, let's look at the right side first. It's kind of got that little lazy S. It goes this way. Okay. Now, here's a little loop here, which kind of means it's congested. But when you decongest the nose, see how much taller it gets. You're, it's a, this is a soft tissue issue, not as much of a structural issue. If you decongested the nose and didn't get a chain, then you could assume that it's more structural. But if it okay. if it if the decongested improves it, then you're talking about more of a soft tissue. Now you can see the other side, the left side is more short and squatty. So they're mm -hmm. having less airflow, more resistance on the left than they are on the right. The decongested right makes it actually go in a better place. When you get these open loops like this, that's called a nasal valve phenomenon. Now these are mm -hmm. this is not necessarily the same patient, but this is what nasal valve phenomenon is. This is a picture of the patient breathing normally. This is the, the middle one is the inspiration and the one on the right is expiration. So you can see she's got nasal valve collapse. When she, when she inspires, her nose closes up. And then when she exhales, you can see the, the nasal areas get bigger. Mm -hmm. So, these are things that you can pick up with rhinomanometry, uh, and it's it actually can correlate to AHI and RDI measurements, which is kind of interesting. Now, here's acoustic rhinometry, which has kind of gotten a bad name, but it does measure uh, minimum cross-sectional area and volume. It what it does when you put the the acoustic tube up by the nose, because what it does is it's sending sound waves 
from the tip of the nose back through the turbinates back into the sinuses. And if you look at the baseline, let's say of this patient, here's their breathing, uh, here's their breathing pattern. And they breathe not normally, you're breathing through one side and the other, and it shows you what the minimum cross-sectional areas are at these levels, like in this region would be the tip of the nose, then back to the, the edge of the turbinate, you can see it decreases at the turbinate and then it decreases a little more, but that's that's pretty good baseline. When you decongest them, you can see that the nasal air, the airway measurement, the airway in centimeters squared increases, mm -hmm. which is a good thing. So right. it gets better. Now, what? Uh, so those are two things that I that I use is look at function because I think function's the most important part of it. But mm -hmm. we also can look at uh, acoustic rhinometry to look at to look at structure. Now, here's a poor man's way to do rhinomanometry. <laughs> it's called a peak nasal inspiratory flow meter, PNIF. What it has is a, is a face mask part on the left that fits over the nose and mouth. It's got a simple tube that has a, see this little red wafer right here? Mm-hmm. Uh -huh. It's got a magnet up at the top. So you, what you do is you put this thing up and tap it. So the magnet takes that little strip and it puts it all the way at the bottom. And then you flip it over. The magnet comes back up. The red wafer stays down here. You have the patient put it on their nose, or put it on their face, their nose. They First, they exhale all the way out. They exhale. They put okay. this thing on their nose and then they inspire real quickly. And then what happens, that little red wafer will move up and it's got a scale on the other side, zero to 800 or whatever it might be. But what it does, it measures that inspiratory flow. So there are measurements in children and adults that mm -hmm. that inspiratory flow should be at a certain level by age. So this is a good one because it moves way up here <laughs> okay, you get some of them they you know they just they don't move the meter so gotcha. then you know that they've got some inspiratory flow issues so it's a real inexpensive way that i think every orthodontist or pediatric dentist or pediatrician or whatever should should easily use because it's something that's real simple now these other machines of course are a little more expensive but they give you significant data and this is a quote that i actually gave to karen i i can do rhinomanometry without cone beam but i really can't do cone beam without rhinomanometry because cone beam doesn't give you function it's a static measurement upright and awake they're not laying down and asleep and it's not function but rhinomanometry you can do it upright and awake you can do it lay down not necessarily sleep because i'm not going to put them to sleep but you get a pretty good idea of what's going on way the only way you really could technically understand how the airway collapses is you got to do drug induced endoscopy and that's something that ent does and you're not going mm -hmm. to do that routinely you just got to kind of extrapolate out what things are but you're looking at function and structure but okay but how and how the function alters the structure so that's kind of how i use rhinomanometry and you mentioned that the audio had received kind of a bad rap 
Why is that? Is it? Well, it's both of these are are, are sensitive, you know, to to know to knowing how to do these things. Okay. Uh, it's acoustic rhinometry. Well, before night before two thousand fifteen. In, in 2015, a standards committee for rhino, rhinometry and rhinomanometry met, and basically they declared that any publication before 2015 was obsolete. So a lot of the older data, the rhinomanometry and, and the acoustic rhinometry, it was pretty technique sensitive and a lot of things went on. And so before 2015, a lot of stuff was published, but because of the way it was done and some of the older equipment, it was kind of considered obsolete. So then all the physicians and everybody go, hey, well, this stuff's not, you know, not true. Well, after gotcha. 2015, they developed four-phase rhinometry, four-phase rhinomanometry, which is a higher level type thing and then you still got to be careful with it but but after 2015 the standards committee basically met and said hey you know four phase rhinometry has a very has a use in medicine and dentistry at that time so if you talk to some physicians early on they hear you know if, if, if they read the whole literature they go oh that's not you know it's not it's not sensitive enough. It's not specific enough. The sensitivity is what I look at here, not necessarily the specificity. I'm looking for screening things. So the higher gotcha. the, specif the sensitivity, the better it is as a, as a, not a diagnostic tool per se, but a screening tool. So what I use this for is when I start seeing flow limitations and things like that, what am I going to do? I'm going to send them to an ENT. Now the ENTs may not, this may not be in their armamentarium, because guess what they're going to do? If, yeah. if they have a problem with nasal airflow, they're going to stick a scope up there and see where mm -hmm. it is and go in there and get it. So, right. But I don't have that capability. So my whole thing is a screening thing up front so I can send it to the appropriate referral doctor and, and, and then be able to... The other thing I use it for is to like expansion, when I'm doing early expansion in children, how, how, am I affecting their nasal flow? Mm, and most okay. of the time they are. If I'm doing a mandibular advancement, if I'm doing a maxillary advancement, whether it be an adult or, or whatever, at least it gives me some objective data right. that I can look at and say, hey, yeah, things improved. And it's non-invasive, basically. It's not, you know, we do take cone beams and I compare these but it's not like i'm gonna take a cone beam every month <laughs> right I can, right I can do this every time they come in sure and then as far as you know data at home you know i i'm one of those people that uses a, a peak flow which is different yeah. than this because you know this is inspiration peak flow is expiration right if as a parent if i were to come in and say hey i brought in my daughter's peak flow for the last month is that helpful information or you know, as a parent, is can we help in that way, or think, is that? Yeah, I think so. And I think this this little piece right here lends itself to kind of telemedicine visits. I mean, you oh know, yeah, uh, 
I think some doctors that are, you know, physicians that are doing something. I mean, you could send this thing. And this is not that it's less than a hundred bucks, but, uh, but you could send these out. You could, you could have them in your office and, and send them out and have patients, you know, do it at home and do it along and send you the data. Hey, what's the, what's the, what's the graph showing us today? And, yeah. and uh, Karen's even, Karen Davidson's even invented a thing called Daphne score, D-A-F-N-E, Daphne score, which actually takes these measurements, PNIF and, and rhinomanometry and acoustic rhinometry, and it puts it in an algorithm and helps to actually interpret, not interpret, but screen to what these measurements kind of mean and maybe some suggestions of therapy, not it's not a diagnostic uh, algorithm, but it kind of lends itself to, uh, you know, to suggestions and say, hey, this means this, of what it means in these, you know, in these graphs, like this, kind yeah. of a, this kind of a flow rate or whatever means this. And then you consider CPAP or appliance therapy maybe uh, expansion or mandibular advancement if the child's class two or whatever. So it just kind of gives you some, gives you some thought processes on it. Yeah. A little more for that. And so, yeah. yeah t- uh, so I guess we'll just kind of build on that as far as what kind of options do parents have for younger children, you know, when it comes to treating these airway disorders? Well, I think they, they need to recognize a few things. And so some of the things are like, does your child snore? Even a little right. bit. They're not supposed right. to snore. People say, well, they, yeah, they snore a little bit. But now, if they got a cold or something like that, that's a different. You're talking that. chronic. It's chronic. chronic it's, snoring. Yeah. Do they, have you ever witnessed them stop breathing or gasping at night? Do they have restless sleep? Do you go in there in the middle of the night? And they're kicking the covers all over the place. Do they wet the bed inappropriate age? Uh, do they have behavioral issues? We don't say, I'm going to show you uh, the CAST committee, uh, Children's Airway Screener Task Force for the ADA, which I'm on. I'm going to show mm-hmm. you that little five questionnaire that we're trying to get validated. And that could be used easily enough for parents to fill out. I'll show you that in just a second. Um, I'll sh- if you want me to, I'm okay. going to show you this little video. Yeah, I would love that. Airway and TMJ. And it's really good because it kind of explains how airway and TMJ relate to each other. Uh, and then I'll tell you how I explain it to parents and patients when they come in also. But I think this is a really good. Airway and TMJ. The normal way to breathe is through your nose. As we grow and develop, certain things such as pollen, cow milk, and other variables can cause an allergic reaction, causing the lymphoid tissues known as tonsils and adenoids to become swollen. As the tonsils and adenoids become swollen, they develop into an obstruction for nasal breathing, and slowly, mouth breathing begins to be the primary intake of air into the body. In order to breathe through the mouth, the lower jaw comes down, the tongue comes off the palate, and settles on the lower teeth. Nasal breathing is the correct way for air to enter the body, and during nasal breathing, the tongue rests at the palate and the pressure of the cheeks is balanced by the tongue. During mouth breathing, the pressure from the cheeks is unopposed by the tongue. The oral system becomes unbalanced and results in the deformation of the upper jaw, creating a V-shaped arch, a 
as opposed to a correct U-shaped part. This also produces an incorrect swallowing function. Upon swallowing, the tongue rests on the lateral teeth, hindering normal tooth eruption, causing a lateral tongue thrust. A constantly open mouth causes the incisors to over-erupt. The result is a deformation of the lower arch known as the bicuspid drop-off. The result of this deformation of the upper and lower arches is the presence of premature contact upon closing, which shifts the lower jaw distally off of the physiologic trajectory. The narrowing of the upper arch pushes the lower jaw back. This forces the TMJ condyle to shift distally while the TMJ disc shifts forward. Upon opening, the disc can shift onto the condyle to restore the TMJ correct position with the deduction of the disc, and then shifts back to an incorrect forward position upon closing. This is what causes a reciprocal flip. In addition, the muscles could be in a state of hypertonus or spasm, which can result in tension headaches. An incorrect position of the lower jaw can result in parafunctional activity of the muscle, such as clenching and grinding. Over time, grinding can result in severely worn down teeth. As a result, the teeth become even shorter, the lower jaw shifts distally even further, and the vertical of the bite decreases. In time, joint degeneration occurs. The joint becomes deformed, and the ligaments of the joint become damaged. As a result, the TMJ disc can get trapped in front of the condyle. While the click may go away, limited mouth opening will occur. A distally shifted jaw and tongue positions result in even further restriction of the airway. In order to open up the airway, the neck moves forward and the head tilts backwards. This stresses the spine and fatigues the neck muscles, which results in neck, back, and shoulder pain. Airway? And, and it, it's just interesting how that works. To get, what, a lot of times what I do when I'm uh, explaining kind of how TMJ and airway relate to each other is with doll tables. <laughs> I'll get some little doll tables, and mm -hmm. uh, I'll have one. And it's got it, all their legs are intact. And then I got another one where I'll cut off one of the legs. I'll put a little wire in it and a hole in it so I can stick it back together, have it connected with a piece of dental floss. But what it does, I show them the, the table and I say, you know, the table needs to be stable. All four legs need to fit just right to make the tabletop level. But I flip it upside down and say, well, here are your two jaw joints the body of the, the top of the table is actually the mandible. And then the two other little guys out here are the teeth. So when you put it all together and you flip it over, look at the airway space under the tabletop with all four legs intact. Mm -hmm. And take the one that's cut and you, you, you get a wobble to it. So that's kind of what's happening. Either your bite may be off or maybe you got degeneration in the TMJ or whatever. So you, mm -hmm. what you have is kind of like a rocky table. So then right. I put the, and then I say, well, look at the airway space now under that table versus the one that's intact. And they go, aha, I, you know, mm -hmm. like, I see what you're talking about. Cause it's a little bit, I, I like to use simple little things like that. Then I, then I put the little 
piece back in there with my wire and stick it back in the hole and say, okay, that's what we're trying to do with the TMJ splint or whatever. We're trying to stabilize that. To keep it open. But say, hey, a lot of times, you know, TMJ issues and sleep tend to go together. They can be independent of each other, obviously, but a lot of times they do coexist. Does one lead to the other? We really probably don't know but exactly, but still they tend to coexist with each other. Travel together. And the video mentioned something that I, in all the research that I've done, I've never heard of, but it's logical that you'll end up with shoulder and neck pain. And and that's, I've never heard that listed as a symptom before. Well, because it's forward head posture, because what people, what they do when you can't, if you're not breathing properly and the lower jaw sitting back, what are you going to do? The body is going to adapt to breathing. It's going to make it. You got to breathe to stay alive. It right. doesn't care what it does to the teeth or to the skeleton or to the spine or whatever. It's mm-hmm. going to, it's going to compensate to make. Now it may not be ideal breathing, but it's survival breathing. See, that's right. where we kind of get into this thing of, okay, well, I'm breathing good enough and I'm staying alive. Well, great. But if you got this forward head posture, now all of a sudden your head weighs more because it's hanging out over the spine, causing your neck pain, but it's right. open in the airway so you can continue to breathe. You're listening to Airway First with today's guest, Dr. William Harrell. You can find out more about the Children's Airway First Foundation and our mission to fix before six on our website at childrensairwayfirst.org. The GAF website offers tons of great resources for parents and medical professionals, including videos, blogs, recommended reading lists, a comprehensive medical research library, podcast, and so much more. Parents are encouraged to join the Airway Huddle, our Facebook support group, which was created for parents of children with airway and sleep-related issues. You can access the Airway Huddle support group at facebook.com backslash groups backslash Airway Huddle. Are you a medical professional or parent that's interested in being a guest on the show, or do you just have an idea for an upcoming episode? If so, shoot us a note via our contacts page on our website, or send us an email directly at info at childrensairwayfirst.org. As a reminder, this podcast and the opinions expressed here are not a medical diagnosis. If you suspect your child might have an airway issue, contact your pediatric airway dentist or pediatrician. And now let's jump back into my interview with today's guest, Dr. William Harrell. Those are things that I think we have to, you know, kind of take into consideration, you know, as we start looking at all this. Or looking holistically again at that. Yep. Yeah, and totally makes sense. So one of the things that we've talked about uh, on, on the podcast before and, and in blogs is specifically retractive braces. You know, we, we know that re- retractive is dangerous. We know that as parents. Now, now we know that. Um, so... When are braces or, or orthodontia the right answer 
and how do parents know, okay, this is the, the way to go or, you know, when to proceed with caution? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, my whole philosophy of things changed. I mean, we were, we were taught in school. One thing you have to do, you have to understand orthodontic education and how it's, how it's set up. The residents are there for three years, two years. They got to learn how to move teeth. Okay. They don't get exposed a lot to early treatment. The, The only reason they would, you know, we, and even in our, residency at UAB, which is, it's evolving and, and the airway is getting to be more, more uh, looked at, but still the orthodontic education, and especially in my day, 1975 to 77, when I was there, is built on, well, we don't want to see them until they're 12 or 14 years old or older, because, you know, we're not going to put braces on them before then. The only time we would treat maybe an early case six m eight is to correct crossbite okay, okay? and right. that, or an underbite or maybe an over you know but a lot of times even back then if they were big class two we'd say hey we got to wait till the 12 or 14 we got two choices we can take out teeth to try to resolve the occlusion or we can wait till surgery mm-hmm. so but orthodontic residents are there for, for two or three years to learn how to move of teeth and the way it's just evolved is they've got to finish their cases up in that two or three year period of time so they're not going to see them before six they're not going to see them at six seven eight unless they got a crossbite but then they're not going to see they're going to correct the crossbite and then just let them sit until they're ready for braces so you kind of have to understand that concept a little bit as to as to why we orthodontists are trained the way we, we are. And in 1982, when all the monkey studies came out about breathing and all that, kind of got me changing my mind a little bit. And especially when I got cone beam and started looking at the relationship of dental arches to mandibular position, maxillary position, narrow arches to the airway, to the TMJ. Then a light bulb came. It's, you get this aha moment and you go, okay, th- now this makes sense for me because early treatment was basically introduced by pediatric dentist and the general dental community, not necessarily orthodox, unfortunately. If we're catching up to it, okay? okay, we're catching up to it. Now, there are times, even me, you know, even me is when I get a case that's late. And periodontally, for whatever reason, I can't expand too much. I can't expand to get all the teeth in. Okay. But if I have to extract, I'm gonna keep it as wide as I can. I'm, I'm a, my whole focus is airway focused, okay, or airway friendly. Try to keep. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna look at the airway first before I make a decision about extraction. Now I can't tell you the last time I've extracted. Because I see kids at four, five, six, we expand them. And guess what? They don't need them. When I'm treating a 12 or 14-year-old case, I've got a class one minor crowded. I could put Invisalign in there or whatever. It's just, it's a simple little case now Mm because I've corrected all the deformity ahead of time. And I liken this to, and I tell orthodontists 
and I tell parents, I go, look, when do you treat a child's got club feet? You treat them at one month. They put cast on those kids at one month to three months at the most. They don't wait six months. Why? Because there's so much growth going on and there's so much moldability because uh-huh. you can take a child at one month, grow their feet, overcorrect, come back. And by the time they're walking, you never know they had a problem. They right. can run and jump and play just like everybody else. But if you wait for those feet to grow mm-hmm. and the bones and get stronger and solidify, yeah. You've got a crippled child. Now, I'm not saying orthodontic crippled, but I'm just saying the principle to me is the same thing. Right. Do it earlier. But you've got to go. You've got to go get that education outside your traditional orthodontic field. Because unfortunately, that's what I try to bring to the table is show the cases. Hey, look, here's a six-year-old child that has these symptoms and all this. Look at the nasal resistance. Let's look, let's do these expansions. Let's see what how they develop over time. And then we can do the orthodontics and it's easy. It's simpler at that point. So that's more and more the education in the orthodontic community has got to be done by practitioners that are adjunct professors or whatever that do that kind of stuff that can show that progression mm-hmm. because that's the only way you're going to get it into the system. And that's what, kind of what I try to do. So I'm, it's, there's a controversy there. And I can tell you though, there is, the thing about retractive orthodontics, it just makes physical sense to me. If you're going to start pushing things back, there's mm-hmm. an airway back there. The tongue's yeah. got to go somewhere. The tongue, if you've got a narrow arch, if you've got a, if you've got a four bedroom house and a two bedroom foundation to put it on, and you got all this furniture in there, which is the problem? I mean, what we've been doing is cutting the toes off the foot and making it fit the shoe. We need to make the shoe fit the foot. Right. And then all of a sudden, when you expand that, guess what? The tongue that sits in there, there's one of the biggest culprits, you're making more room for it. So it just makes mm-hmm. sense to me. Now, unfortunately, there is really not ever, there's not a, there's not a good randomized control study that shows that extractions and that kind of stuff cr- cause sleep apnea okay okay there's and that's kind of what orthodontists we we kind of quote a lot of times and that's true i mean there's not but in my mind it doesn't make physical sense because it's violating physical laws if you put if you try to put the tone inside a smaller shoe it, it, it just it just doesn't work. You yeah. Know, you got a bigger shoe. It's got more, you've got more function. I mean, it just makes sense to me. It just makes common sense to me to do it. But the problem that you run into is people say, well, there's no randomized control study. So therefore I'm not going to believe that. Well, here's the problem. You can't do the study. It's, uh, it would be unethical to do the study to prove that. And what you would have to do is you would have to take a thousand kids and 
you know, treat them the normal traditional way. You have to take another thousand and treat them functional. You have to take another thousand and not treat them. And not and do anything, go yeah. through the time and do polysonography and all this kind of stuff and see who dies first. Right. And, I mean, right. ethically, it cannot be done. Correct, yeah. To prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. So there are literature that kind of supports the idea that retractive things aren't good. There, there's other literature that's out there in our literature. The, the problem is you got to get outside our dental literature. You got to get into medical literature. Yeah. Which, which brings me to my, my next question. You know, where, where have we gone wrong as far as medicine goes? It feels like there was a misstep somewhere, not, you know, an intentional thing, but somewhere we, yeah. we made a misstep because we have all these kids around the world that are experiencing airway disorders and sleep issues. And then you know, all of us as adults that had retractive braces and things like this done. Where, yeah. where did we misstep? Well, I don't know if it was a misstep other than an overlook. Because okay. when this started, when Dr. Gimeno discovered sleep apnea, who was it on? It was on obese men. You know, right. It was Which growing up, that's what we knew. We're so what they do first? Sore, they, did yeah. tracheo- they did tracheotomy. They put a mm-hmm. hole in the throat because these, these people are going to die. <laughs> right. So they right. bypassed the obstruction. And then all of a sudden, uh, Sullivan in Australia invented the CPAP by reversing a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> That's how it right. And then all of a sudden, CPAP was developed to treat these people. So oh, there was a, a you know, a, 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 so the whole thing about sleep apnea was it's in obese men and we got to put a reverse vacuum cleaner on them to keep them alive. Right. So that's all that research started in adults. And it, and then, you have a voluminous amount of information on CPAP and its efficiency and efficacy and all that kind of stuff in the medical field because they jumped on that. That's their that's their gold standard. Uh, what are the other two? You know, the other two almost absolute treatments are tracheotomy, which is not really done anymore, or mm-hmm. double jaw surgery, where they take the upper jaw, move it out. They take the lower jaw, move it out. And guess what? You open up the airway. So we never thought about that as a as a treatment modality. Why don't we copy that treatment modality of maxillary advancement surgery in children by growth is my point. And so then it gets to, hey, if it make if it makes sense in adults that are, the problem is in adults, it's already developed. The right. problem is there. It's already there, and but back then, here, we could have fixed it. Back up here, we could. And we never made that connection until about 1976 when Dr. Gimeno discovered sleep apnea in children. And mm-hmm. he spent his life work trying to figure out what can we do in young children rather than putting them on a CPAP because that alters facial growth. Yes, it blows air down the tube and opens up, but it it create some maxillary recessiveness. So it's pushing back, which mm-hmm. is not the way you really want to go. Right. So you really want everything to come forward. And then I started looking at things. I said, well, you know, it just, it makes sense. Some of the cephalometric numbers that we orthodontic 
punished go by a lot. Probably a ret- too retrognathic. We just we looked at normalness is not. I mean, uh, things that are common are not necessarily normal. Are not normal. Yep, we're hearing that a there's, lot. There's commonness, but not normalness or idealness. I mean, there's probably mm-hmm. no ideal out there, but at least normal or or good quality breathing that creates good quality growth and good quality brain and cardiac development is one thing. Just getting by is another thing. It's so right. normal, but we it consider be. it normal. We can see, I was going to say, we, we consider it normal. We consider it normal. But then we go back in time a few hundred years ago, Kevin Boyd, and Mariana Evans, and, mm-hmm. and a lot of them have talked about what happened at the Industrial Revolution. Breastfeeding was because women went out to work and they bottle fed and the, the children don't chew on <laughs> things like they used to. And Right, and it's all soft not. food. And soft foods and the diet changed. All this stuff changed, which we know that our face has gotten smaller, our brain has gotten bigger. That's just, you know, evolution. And as our face has gotten smaller, you know, the airway is just what's left over after everything else takes its place. You know, it's just mm-hmm. kind of the second thought, but it's the number one thing we got to do. <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. It's breathing. It was it's really kind of interesting how it all, de- you know, developed that way. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. So, um, and then here is the, if you want me to go, yeah. this, this is yeah. that statement by the ADA, the ADA policy on role of dentistry in the treatment of sleep-related breathing disorder. Mm-hmm. I was at this reference committee when they adopted this and they had, you know, a lot of people talking about it and a lot of discussion about it. There was one person there that that actually uh, was against it, and he was the past president of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. And here was his point about it. And, and in fact, he's he was correct when what he said, even though it wasn't taken very well. But what he said is, you know, physicians have to go through a year of residency to become a sleep physician. To call okay. themselves a sleep physician, they have to go through a year's worth of study in a in a field to to be a sleep physician. Mm-hmm. Dentists, all they have to do is take two impressions and a bite registration, and they're a dental sleep medicine practitioner. And that's probably not correct. He said, you know, y'all don't, you just, you just don't get the same. So this is where the American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine comes in. So I'm in the process okay. of trying to get board certified there. You need, you don't, just because your license allows you to take two impressions and a bite registration, send it off to a lab to get a sleep appliance, you better be careful because you're touching, you're putting your toe, not really your toe, you're jumping into the medical lake. <laughs> okay. You are putting yourself, you need to know what you're doing. You need to study and get qualified at least qualified by the American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine and other, there's AAPMD, there's a bunch of other places where you can get good good information. But you need to know what you're doing. Just because you can take a bite and make an appliance and stick that in somebody 
do not do that and take them off of CPAP. You're sticking your toe in medicine. I never tell patients to get off CPAP. I get with the physician and I say, hey, this patient's come in. They seem like they're intolerant. Can we work together? Yes, I need a physician's written order of stating that this patient is CPAP intolerant and I need and and he, the doctor rec- the physician recommends me make a sleep apnea. I look at myself as a DME provider. Okay, I'm a durable medical equipment provider by the physician. You're, you're covering yourself if you get that if you get that letter from the from the physician stating that uh, that he recommends sleep sleep appliances. So. Basically, this did pass, and it passed. It, it was appropriate. He was just making a point that dentists need to be educated. Yeah, more educated on the sleep side. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, and Especially look in children, even in adults, that every dentist should screen for these things. Hang on, just, let me close this door. Hang on, just a minute. I got my vacuum going. Sorry about that. My my Roomba vacuum started up. <laughs> I could hear it. No worries. But anyway, especially in children, every child should be screened. And there's a pediatric sleep questionnaire. There's another one I'm going to show you in just a minute from, from the ADA that we're working on. But okay. we need to look for the risk factors. We need to screen these kids up front, especially even in adults. Does this screen, do you have, do you have snoring? Do you stop breathing? Do you have excessive daytime sleepiness? Do you tend to fall asleep at the wheel for adults or whatever? Those those and some of these questionnaires are just way too long. <laughs> I mean, they're like 20, yeah. 30, 40, 50 questions. I mean, we're trying to boil it down into five or six six questions that are specific to the point and at least just as a screening device. And right, uh, right. If any any yes answer elicits hey further information, so basically that's what this is. This is the ADA's uh, Children's Airway Screener Task Force. Uh, this is the screener, and so basically what we're trying to do is hear the questions: Does your child mouth breathe or lips apart while awake or asleep? While sleeping or napping, do they snore? Noisy breathing, difficulty breathing, pausing or gasping for breath? neck extended, weird sleeping postures. Do they have dry mouth or headache when they wake up? And then they have, we don't call it ADHD. We just say, do they you know, have tiredness, behavioral, emotional issues? So basically any yes answer elicits more information. Now what okay. I've done is I've taken it over here and say, okay, they check yes. Now, why did they check yes? Because yeah. most of them, they say, well, I don't know if their mouth breathes, but yeah, their lips are apart all the time. And then the snoring, noisy breathing and whatnot. So what this does, it it just kind of, it's a real simple little questionnaire. We're going to get it validated. Uh, What we're looking for is to get, uh, well, Candy knows about it. And and, Mm -hmm. uh, your group knows about what we're trying to do with Steve Carstensen and Jerry Jerry Simmons to get this thing validated. Uh, by polysonography and, and what Jerry's using as a sleep image ring and try to validate this uh, with objective data and then publish it. And hopefully, you know, practitioners can easily use it. Now, 
So any yes answer elicits further information. And then, you know, it'll soon be available online version. Parents can fill it out online in a research portal. Wouldn't it be great if they also had like a PNIF? You could send them a PNIF or something like that for me yeah. and bring right. it back in. So that's kind of the the things that we're, you know, kind of looking at now. And we can, there's my there's my grandkids. Mm. <laughs> I'm actually fixing to go in a little bit to go. She's cheering in a in a for one of the the football teams. So we're heading to Birmingham as soon as I get. Oh, there. nice. So anyway, nice. Just, uh, Very good. So okay. So at the end of every episode, I always like to turn the floor completely back over to our guests and just leave you with the final thoughts and words, and it can be for our parents that listen or for our medical professionals or, or both. It's completely up to you. Okay. Well, I think we need, we need the the professionals, whether it be physicians, dentists, number one, we need them to work together. Uh, One reason I showed the book that we got at, at the first, because it's, it's about interdisciplinary management. Go see your ENT. They may not, if you're an orthodontist or a dentist, track down medical professionals, the phys- pediatricians. You, it may take you a little while to get people to listen to you, but mm-hmm. you know, look at the literature. Try to get stuff out of there from Dr. Gimeno and and the Stanford Group, uh, Stanley Liu, Audrey Yoon, who's an orthodontist out at out at Stanford. Uh, she's done a lot of stuff with expansion and showing how all that works. Steve Carstensen, obviously, with with the general dental crowd. And then, you know, David Gazal, because, I mean, they've got – you go get the literature that's the upper echelon literature. Don't just – I mean, there's a lot of other stuff out there, but you really right. need – if you're going to get their attention – you got to give them to people that they know or they've heard of, or at least they can mm-hmm. go, okay, yeah, Dr. Zoll is the most prolific writer in the world on sleep apnea. Okay, they're right. going to listen to it. People, The stuff out of Stanford, people are going to listen to. So, and we need to, you know, we need to get the information to the ENTs and the pediatricians and, and all that too of, of what we can do uh, as dentists or orthodontists, what, what, part we play in this that we're an adjunct to them is the way I look at it I don't want to go into them and go hey you know here's all my stuff and beat my chest I want to go I want to learn from you I want to learn more about airway and where you're coming from but I want to give you some ideas on what the literature says about what we can do as far as expansion and this that and the other that can help that but then we you know need to get more like you know, your group to, you know, as far as parents understanding this, because I'm getting, I'm getting referrals a lot from a hundred miles away now, but just because of my reputation that's built up, I guess that, Hey, we look at airway now. We're not just looking at straight Mm -hmm. teeth, even though that's, we want straight teeth. We want pretty smiles. We want pretty faces, but we want the patient to have a good airway. And and I want to, related to more airway focused kind of thing. So I think the parents need to just ask, you know, when they go see a pediatric dentist or orthodontist, just ask them how, uh, how do they feel about airway? And if they go, oh, oh, that's just a bunch of, you know, unfortunately find somebody else. 
<laughs> but the problem now is you get on Facebook and all this other stuff and you read all this stuff and half of it's hearsay and everything uh, else. Stick to the experts and what they say. You, you got to get the experts. I mean, yeah. but you know, I mean, Candy and her husband about their daughter. I mean, the, 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 that's in, that's impressive. I mean, that's an unbelievable what they did and what they had to go through to finally get some answers. Get savvy, some, yeah, to get savvy. Help. I'm so uh, proud to be a part of this because I mean, she's opening up. They're opening up a lot of eyes. Y'all's group is opening up a lot of eyes to parents, and it needs to be even more. You know, um, so they can, so the parents can ask the right questions. Yep. And that's kind of our goal. That's why yep. we're here. Yep. Well, thank you very much for being on the yep. podcast today. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. We're glad to do it again. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks to today's guest, Dr. William Harrell, for sharing his medical insights and to each of you for listening to today's episode. If you're new to our podcast, please don't forget to subscribe. And if you enjoyed today's episode, leave us a review or comment telling us what you enjoyed most. You can stay connected with the Children's Airway First Foundation by following us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Parents can also join us via our Facebook parent support group, the Airway Huddle, at facebook.com backslash groups backslash Airway Huddle. Looking for more from CAF? Then check out our new YouTube channel. You can find a variety of informative original video content pieces, as well as video recordings and excerpts from selected Airway First podcast episodes. If you'd like to be a guest or have an idea for an upcoming episode, shoot us a note via the contacts page on our website or send us an email directly at info at childrensairwayfirst.org. And finally, thanks to all the parents and medical professionals out there that are working to help make the lives of kids around the globe just a little bit better. Take care, stay safe, and happy breathing, everyone.